I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences about the trials they faced and the way they've still found the resilience and courage to live their best lives. I am Jenny Taylor. And I am Michelle Scharf. Today, we are so pleased to talk to Wendell. He is going to share with us a story about his son, a gold star are they gold star family? gold star parents yeah gold star star and, parents and this is another one in our series of memorial day episodes related to the unquiet professional the foundation that is honoring the lives and the sacrifice of several of these unquiet professional military men and women who have given so much not only in the lives that the the soldier or the airman himself gave but the lives and the legacy left with their family. And so, Wendell, we're grateful that you're here because we know that your son's story, of course, is very much your family's story. And we're grateful to get to know you and John and the rest of your the rest of your group. So can you just give us a little background and introduce yourself to us and to our listeners? Happy to. So I am Wendell Pelham. I have the, the privilege and the honor of being the son of a 34-year Army veteran, father, um served all over the world. I got to live all over the world. I have a brother that was born in Korea, a brother that was born in Germany. Three of us were born at what was then Fort Irwin, which is now the National Training Center, and one brother born at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Um, my oldest, my older brother, there are five boys. I'm second in line. My older brother was a member of the Ranger Regiment, served for 18 years in the U.S. Army, and um, so it, it's the oh, U.S. Army is kind oh. of a family business, uh, if you will. Go Army. Absolutely. Beat Navy. I'm a, excuse me. Um, and the rest of them. <laughs> but mostly Navy. But mostly Navy. Um, so just a little background. We, um, we are an amazing conglomeration of, of people in the Pelham household. We have six children. Uh, and I love to refer to them currently as, you know, when people ask how many kids we have, I go, we have six, five that are still walking, talking and borrowing money out of my wallet, whether I know it or not. And one that flies over watch to make sure that they don't get all of my money. Oh, I love and that. So, yeah. And so John's <laughs> the one that's flying over watch. He's up in, you know, he's up in heaven working, working for the Lord, doing his second mission in life, um, trying to keep his dad and his brothers specifically in line. His mother and his and his sisters are pretty good at it, um, but you know we we are truly grateful that that we have the faith that we have and the beliefs that we have that 
you know, John is ours forever as an eternal family. And it's one of the beauties of, of our situation, if you will, the opportunity to share our testimonies and share our faith that, I um, mean, you know, when people tell me, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, you know, I, I, I look up and go, well, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. However, um, in all clarity, John is not lost. We did not lose him. He is very, very, we are very con- keenly aware of where he is. Um, but a lot like his military career, we don't know exactly what he gets to do and who he gets to hang out with, but we're pretty sure it's with some pretty stellar humans and uh, pretty special individuals in the Lord's kingdom. I'm and pretty, so I'm pretty sure he's staying busy. Uh, extremely busy. I mean, again, remember he's flying overwatch for me so that I don't mess things up. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we, we uh, have been very active in the church. We're very active in athletics uh, John and each of his siblings all played um, youth sports and then school sports and, and collegiate sports. Three of our kids played collegiate, um, were collegiate athletes, and um, the others could have as well. However, they just decided not to go to school. Um, and so they you know, didn't graduate on time from high schools and didn't do things that, that <laughs> were in normal families uh, the norm. But... Um, you know, we were, John was, um, John had a very driven purpose in life. Um, at times we thought he was impatient. And then after his death, we came to the realization that it had nothing to do with being impatient. It had everything to do with the fact that he and his spirit both knew that they had a specific work that they were about while being here on the earth, um, and so they, they got it, but the rest of us didn't. And so when we thought he was being impatient or we thought that he was running, you know, off into a deep abyss just because he could, it had nothing to do with that. It was as my youngest, as my oldest granddaughter said, when, when her mother, our second daughter, um, told her that her uncle had been killed, um, Hallie was five years old, and she stopped for a moment and looked up and said, huh, okay, well, that makes sense. He's now in God's army. Oh, wow. And, yeah, she's all five and a half, I think. Out of so. the mouth of babes, right? Yeah. So, you know, we kind of got a different perspective of, of his life and his mission on the earth. And John was always, um, always the – the guardian of the underdog, which is very interesting in that in his military career, he was assigned to the second battalion of the third special forces group, which are green berets and loosely translated their motto. De oppressa liber means to free the oppressed or help the oppressed become free. And so when John was assigned to them and we realized that he'd always been the watchdog for the, the under, um, the underdog, if you will, the underprivileged, it made perfect sense that that's where the Lord wanted him to serve his military service and his earthly mission. So, um, That is beautiful. I love that, Wendell. So I know you said you come from this military background with, with generations of service. Did John grow up from a small boy just waiting to be old enough to sign and enlist? Was that kind of always his plan to, to be at Green Beret? Or can you tell us a little bit about the maybe what led him to making that decision and actually joining the ranks? 
Yeah, I think I think um, a couple points. Number one was um, he was always he was always the cowboy and defending the Indian, not shooting the Indian when they were kids, which I always thought was a little perplexing. But you know, whatever. Um, and as he continued to grow up, um, my father was a major um, force in his life, and then my older brother, John's uncle. You know, they they in his mind they epitomized. Um, the American dream. Uh, they epitomized freedom. They epitomized what it meant to sacrifice their lives uh, to defend and honor the flag and defend and honor the Constitution of the United States. And he never made it very clear that that's what he wanted to do. He did, he'd hinted at it a number of times. And, and one of the problems that became an opportunity, which led him to this decision, was at the end of his junior year, his his counselor at high school said, hey, you know, you got a problem. You're about eight credits short. You're not going to graduate with your class on time as a senior because you just haven't done the work. And it's going to be very difficult for you to come up with the additional credits to graduate on time. So there's a program uh, throughout the United States. Uh, it happens to be in 48 states. It's called the National Guard Youth Challenge Program. And I would suggest that anybody that listens to this podcast and has a child or knows of a child in their community um, that is struggling with going to high school, that they look into this program because it is it is amazing. It's run by the National Guard. It is an actual high school that kids can go to and receive their credits. They can get a GED, they can get a diploma, they can graduate from the school, or they can go back to their, their original school and graduate with their classes. Um, and John elected to go to an orientation and listen to the story, listen to the program, and then elect it to, to enroll. Now, when you elect to enroll, it is a six-month residential program. You move into a facility, um, and the cadre are all um, retired veterans of the U.S. military. So they don't take any grief. They don't take any guff. They're very direct. They're forceful. But they help teach these young individuals real true life coping skills and and disciplines and what it means to be honorable and have integrity and when you speak your name you speak it with truth and honor and when you speak others names you speak it with truth and honor and so there's there is this this entire organization that's designed to take a group of american children and help them realize the greatness that they possess um Every one of these young men and young women that are in, in, involved in the program are recognized as great, not just good, but they, they possess greatness. And the key behind the Oregon Youth Challenge Program is to pull that greatness out while allowing the student, the young man or the young woman, to recognize that they are inherently wonderful human beings. That's awesome. I, Did, I wish I had heard about this program yeah, how many for one kids, of my sons. How many kids <laughs> yes. can benefit? So, Wendell, you said he moved out and lived there. Was it was it nearby your family's home, or was this like a national thing that you shipped him off to D.C. or somewhere? No, it's each. there are 48 programs in the United States out of the 50 states, and they are residential programs within the boundaries of the state that the program um, is just, has jurisdiction in. And so John actually went over to... It's Central Oregon to Bend, and the school is in a in an old um, 
ICBM tracking station. So the big blast doors, uh, great big thick cement walls. I mean, it's very few windows, like none. Um, <laughs> and it's a it's a compound. I mean, you have to get permission to come on, and um, it, it's it is just an amazing place where these young adults get to go and realize that they have no control, and they're about to get taught what real life looks like. And the teachers, like I say, it's a high school, so the teachers um, are are no different than we would have it at North Ogden or at at um, Woods Cross or Logan or you know you name a, a high school in in the state of Utah or any state. Um, same accredited teachers, and then you have the cadre who help with the physical um, conditioning aspects and the PT and the FaceTime with the dirt and the sand and all the wonderful things. So, I love in, that. In, oh my gosh! It, it and and you know the, the interesting thing is to have one of your children make that decision to say yes, I'm going to go do that. I think that's my only option to becoming a real adult. Um, that will give back to the community. Yes. So John, John said to yes. Recognize that. All right, yes, Wendell, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want you to tell us a little more about John's life once he joined the military. And then of course, what led to his, his deployment and service and the tragedy that your family has, t- has faced. We'll be right back. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we love talking with you, Wendell, because you're so positive and upbeat. Like I'm sitting here at the time of recording. It's a Monday morning. Maybe I'm kind of half just trying to get into this week and just listening to you knowing that you're speaking of your family, your your late son, and yet this optimism, this faith is just really quite contagious, even through the radio waves. So thank you for that. I love hearing about John and his decision as a high school student to kind of put himself back on track, this wonderful program he found through the National Guard. And can you tell us what that looked like once he graduated and became a, a soldier, not just in this youth high school program, but the real deal, the Green Beret and everything? Yeah, Um just, just a real quick backtrack. Um, you know, thank you for the for the recognition of being positive. It when John was killed, um, we as a family sat down and had a family council and talked about what this means, what this would mean to us, the changes that would occur, and we we each got to speak because it's a it is a true family council and and across the board we came to the realization that we had two options. One. Um, sit in the corner in the fetal position and cry like babies. And we all agreed that we were still going to do that, that there was no getting around that. <laughs> we all voted yes. <laughs> we all voted yes. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when we had that conversation with the Lord about coming to the earth and we said yes. Um, the, other, the other side of that was 
we realized that John was such a powerful presence in in the community, in the family, in school. Anything he did, people wanted to gravitate to him. He just he had a, a very specific magnet magnetism that um, now we know why. Um, and so we chose that lay in the corner, curled up in the fetal position, cry like a baby all the time, or make this the most positive event other than, and forgive me for being churchy, other than being our baptisms or our, our receiving our endowments and being sealed in the temple. This would be one of those defining moments for the Pelham family, that we would, we would take this shot on the chin, if you will, the most devastating news that, that a family would ever get and turn it into the most amazing and positive blessings that we could extend and have extended to us. You know, many people are have a difficult time allowing people to serve them. And yet that's one of the greatest things that we learn in life is to become a great leader, you must first become a great servant. And in, in order to become a great servant, you have to allow other individuals the blessings that come from serving you. And so John graduated from high school, went off to play small college baseball. Halfway through, he came home and uh, I drove up and the car's in the driveway. It's like, oh my gosh, my kid's in trouble. What'd he do? Um, and the fact of the matter was he came home to tell us that he was going to join the army, that he was wasting his time playing baseball and that there were other people that were that were more deserving of his scholarship and he was going to join the U.S. Army. And um, I immediately said, okay, great. When do you want to go to the recruiter? He goes, already done. When are you going to take your ASAP? Already done. When are you going to find out what you're doing? Already done. Dad, you're too late. I've already taken care of it. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, self says I, how did I miss this? <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. I'm supposed to pay attention to all this. But, you know, he's a so big boy. He, he's grown up. So is he actually saying, and I deploy on this day or I I go into basic it, training on this date? It, was that the message that he came to tell you? Uh, pretty much. He came to tell me and his mother and his brothers and sisters that, hey, I love you with all my heart. I'm going to go defend the Constitution of the United States of America. I was born a warrior. I've always been a warrior. I need to continue to be a warrior. Um, it's what the Lord gifted me with. It's like, oh, so how are you going to argue that? You can't. And so he was there to tell us that I'm going to become a, a signals intelligence analyst. I'm going to go hunt and track bad guys. And then, uh, you know, let let the chips fall where they may, if you will. But that's what I want to do. And I go to MEPS on this day for my in-processing, and I'll probably be heading out to basic on or around this day. John, what year was it, or Wendell, what year was this that John joined? Uh, that would have been, he died in 2014, so it would have been 2011. So can you tell us a little bit about those couple of years of service? Obviously, a, a good chunk at first is training, your basic training, your AIT, yep. getting getting your feet wet, getting the right qualifications. Green Beret is not just an overnight thing. Then it sounds like he served a couple of years maybe at, at home or assigned somewhere. And then can you lead us into that deployment that ended up um, being yeah. his last so, deployment? So John went to basic. And I came out of basic and then went to airborne school, came out of airborne school, went to AIT in San Angelo, Texas. Um, it's, it's one of the um, primary uh, learning centers for 
what we call SOT A's and SOT B's or intelligence analysts and human intelligence analysts. Um, and he was, he was, um, there's a program that the top of the class qualifies for. And he happened to be that individual. It's called the Fast Start. And John's first active duty mission, if you will, was um, he was immediately sent to an organization out of the special operations community and deployed to Afghanistan. And in some records, that deployment doesn't show up. Other records, it does. Um, and the reason the reason behind that is that it was it was very classified and some some things that were done and and some trainings that were given um, around that were where he really learned who he was and the power that he had in understanding his military occupational specialty, his wow. MOS. Yeah, so that was that was straight out of the gate. Just so he didn't wait the- around, like like you said, he was he was living life in the the fast track. A lot to do, maybe without overtly knowing he didn't have much time. He certainly wasn't sitting Correct. back waiting. Correct. His 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 driving factor was as a signals intelligence analyst. His driving factor was I have to do everything in my power, all the knowledge that I possess and all the knowledge that I can gain to protect my brothers and sisters from being in harm's way. That was his that was his purpose in in life at that point in time. Um, I got a call from him and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about reenlisting." At the same time, I got a I got a significant job offer to become a contractor, mm. and we talked for about 45 minutes. And the end of the conversation was, "Yeah, no, I'm staying where I am. I don't make any money. It's not about the money. It's about taking care of uh, about taking care of my family, about taking care of my brothers and sisters, about taking care of the the country that I am so proud of." And that was it. Off yeah. he went. And, um, yeah, I'm sure he could have made quite a bit more money as an intelligence contractor with all of that training and experience, and yet he chose to stay in the uniform and answer that call to serve once more. Did he deploy again in 2014, or was he there at, at the end of 13? At the end of 13. He went in, and I believe it was August of 13, um, and that was his second deployment, and um, he had great leadership. I mean, great senior NCOs, great officers. Um, they saw in him the abilities to to lead and to not be argumentative, but to he, – he learned how to brief early. So he knew how to do his research, how to put his facts and figures down, and then give it to the senior leadership at the, the um, company and battalion level very, very succinctly to where they were like, this kid's got something going on as well as being goofy as can be. Um, you know, his, his, uh, professionalism was, was a little bit off the charts for his age. And so they made him the NCOIC of the night crew, um, as a specialist. And so he ran the, in, that part of the intelligence world for that unit at night, um, so Wendell, I'll what jump in. You and I, you and I both know Army, and we speak some of those acronyms oh, and regs. Sorry. But no, you're okay. I I want to emphasize it because it really drives home the point that he was um, probably 
both qualified and and um, entrusted with jobs beyond his age, beyond his years of what might have been expected of someone. NCOIC is the non-commissioned officer in charge, and a specialist would be the what's called E4 or the enlisted rank four. So usually a very young person. I mean, John couldn't have been very old. Obviously, one of the earlier ranks. Not usually the one you say, hey, let's put you in charge and, and have you brief this and run that. And that just shows again to what you're telling us of his character and his capacity that he had it and that it was recognized and put to work. So I just wanted to kind of define a couple of things there. And Thank as you, you talked yeah. about this, it, this young guy that clearly is doing the work well beyond his years. Well, he, when he was killed, he was 22 and a half. So young. So young. So, and it's, and it's amazing, you know, and I didn't, I didn't put two and two together until I got a chance to talk to some, some very senior leaders in the, the special operations world. Um, you know, John's name is on a classroom in a building on Fort Bragg. He's got pictures on a number of different buildings. Um, he's recognized on the hall of heroes, the wall of heroes at the NSA. Um, there were some things that he did that were pretty significant. Um, the day he was killed, um, he was credited with saving a significant number of lives because of the intel that he had gathered coming in from a um, a firefight. And he was literally running into the courtyard telling everybody that the insurgents were actually in the forward operating base and where they were exactly and that they needed to be taken care of. And in that, let's just say, in less than a minute, the um, the attack had just begun, and John was a little, you know, just right there when it all occurred, and and uh, he was uh, a, a Green Beret was killed, and then four support soldiers were wounded, and then John was killed, and that was all in literally seconds and and minutes, and then the um, the, the remaining three insurgents, there were four total, were tracked down they they had left their vehicles and were trying to set explosive and do do some other things that they were all dispatched with extreme extreme prejudice but um john john was he was well beyond his years and that's why they allowed him to do certain things so if you're okay to tell us a little bit more so it sounds like there were the people were gathered. He was able to come yeah. in and warn several that so, basically uh, that an attack was imminent, and then that attack cost him his life. That same attack. Yes. Yeah. He was wow. he was tracking he was tracking this group of insurgents, um, and they got to the fob. He set up his his systems, and realized that when one of the insurgents had made a statement through their communication devices to a, a force outside the the wall, if you will. Um, he caught him. He knew it. And so that's when he came running out of this building, you know, and I can just see him coming out of this building, yelling, lock them down. They're in the Humvees, take care of business. However, he was, he was yelling at a major. And while all that was occurring, the first rounds were being fired. And then because of that yelling and because of that, that statements that he was making to his leadership, they were able to, um, minimize the the injuries and the death to a total of six people. Oh um, my goodness. So the two that were killed and then four of the, the support soldiers um, out of a significant number of individuals. There was, um, it was, it was a, 
a pretty, and not because I'm his father, but because I'm a, I'm an American and I, I grew up in the service. It was a pretty heroic act. I don't think he had any, any inclination whatsoever that he would be killed in doing his job. But like most of our service members who have since 1975, who have volunteered to serve in the United States militaries, they, whether they, they did it on purpose, they knew it could happen to them, or they just did it because they wanted to join. They all signed that proverbial blank check that they would give their lives in defense of our country. And I never doubted in my life that John would ever not, if that's what was called of him or asked of him, that he would not give his life. And subsequently, that's what happened. Wow. I I love um, just hearing you say that again with such, such, I mean, optimism almost sounds like the wrong word for it because that's not it, but it's a faith. It's a belief clearly in our country and these values and principles and the freedoms we have mattering even more than life itself, which is a really bold statement to make for someone who's lost someone in the battle for that freedom and, and those values that we love. We're going to take one more quick break, Wendell. And when we come back, we want you to kind of take us on a journey through the immediate aftermath of John's death and how that has evolved and blossomed into this beautiful determination to live an incredible, meaningful and positive life. We'll be right back. All right, John, can you tell us, um, I love that you mentioned a few minutes ago that your family sat down and decided that even though, yes, we're going to sit in the corner and cry in a field position because it hurts so much to lose John, we're not going to stop there. We're going to take it and do something beautiful and powerful and, and beneficial to others. Can you take us through that journey? Was it, was it an overnight decision? Has it been gradual? Do you ever find yourself maybe volleying back and forth? And where are you today after this number of years has passed since uh, his death? Um, thanks. So let's talk resilience. Um, I think it, as human beings and as Americans, we don't have a, we don't have a, um, a lock on being resilient. There are so many different ethnicities and different cultures around the world that are amazingly resilient. As Americans, um, you know, we have the opportunity to, to live in a land in, in the land of the free because of the brave and the home of the brave and resilience to the Pelhams looks like um, we're going to do everything we can to honor John and in honoring John and his legacy and his life, we get to honor my older brother um, who was in multiple foreign lands in, in wars and conflicts. We get to honor my father who, you know, served in Vietnam and served in other capacities all over the United States and all over the world defending the freedoms that we enjoy. So resilience looks like we get up, we get up and, and each day we go forward with a purpose and a task to make sure that everyone understands why we live like John. When John was killed, a group of his friends got together and, and got, to, got to have lunch. And it was literally, um, it was literally four days after John was killed. And one of the guys said, hey, look, I just have to live my life more like John. I have to have I have to have greater purpose, greater drive, greater resolve to do more. And that's where the term live like John came from. And live like John, we decided to use that term and create a foundation so that individuals would know that there is life after death for a family, that we're going to grieve. Everybody's going to grieve. There's no way around it. I mean, I'm I'm seven years into this process. And yesterday, during Mother's Day, um, 
my heart hurt for my wife because she doesn't get that phone call on Mother's Day that so many moms get or so many wives get that says, hey, just call and tell you I love you. However, with that said, I do know without a shadow of a doubt that John told his mother yesterday that he loved her. In, in the only ways that he could do it from where he currently resides. And so we started this foundation and um, we've become very active in how we help um, families of those who have lost a loved one, whether it's in combat, whether it's a death by suicide or by a training accident. Um, we recognize that the loss of, the, of a loved one, the pain and the grief that comes from it is not, is not just um, one group of soldiers' families. It's all of the soldiers and service members that have served. Each of the families will suffer a pain and a, a grief that at times becomes unbearable. And the way that the Pelhams have decided to work through that pain is through our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the promises that we have that we will be together forever, that we are united as an eternal family, and that we will be together for eternity. Um, the journey has been, it's been amazing. Um, we know that it is the most tragic event, the most horrific event that most families will ever go through, the loss of a, a husband, wife, son, or daughter, brother, sister, and uncle, cousin. Um, the, the unit has been disrupted. And we know that through the pain and through the suffering and the grief have come for the Pelhams some of the most amazing spiritual, emotional, financial, uh, physical blessings that we never would have had had John not died in defense of his country. And, you know, without being too churchy if you go back and listen to or read in in um in mosiah and king benjamin's address he talks about you know when you're in the service of your fellow man you're only in the service of your god and that of course now has significance more significance in the pelham's lives because we recognize john's service to his fellow man was in fact service to his god and um the journey is is not easy and the journey is not one that i would i would want on want anyone to have to go through but again as the savior taught us never said it would be easy i only said it would be worth it and because of that we look forward every day we strive every day to live it live life to its fullest to be as kind and compassionate and understanding as as we possibly can and for someone like me that's difficult because, you know, I, I'm not a soft heart at, by nature, um, but I'm learning. And I'm learning because John's there to validate me every time I need to be validated and get checked. Every time I need to get checked um, to take care of my family and those around us. Um, and that's why we started the foundation as we saw a need for families to be uplifted and to be given information that would help them move through 
these devastating and difficult times and help them through uh, this life so that they could realize that their, their loved one gave their all because that's what kind of family reared these types of individuals. It was, there was something in how they were taught and what they learned by being part of this nuclear family that drove them, that gave them the passion to be servants and then protect each of us. That is so beautiful. And I'm going to have to send this straight to my mother-in-law because I feel the exact same way about my husband and his brothers and sister and the desire they have to serve in uniform and out of uniform and just that that service-minded rearing that came from their household, like you said, the the family that kind of paved the way and our hearts ache for you and your your wife, your other children, the nieces and nephews that don't have their uncle physically here. And yet we rejoice with you that you have, again, this positivity and not just this positivity like a Pollyanna, but a determination to make something good out of this, to create opportunities to uplift and inspire, not to just sit back and hope the sun comes out because it's supposed to eventually come back out, but you're out there just fighting the clouds, tearing them away and insisting whether I see it or not, I know the sun is there. And Wendell, that's what I just, I love about you and this story. I really am grateful you would share it with us. I remember the one time that I briefly met you and your wife in person before knowing who you were. Very shortly after my husband was killed, we were at the same memorial service around Memorial Day and just the kindness that you shared with me and the rest of our family members who were there, particularly Brent's parents. There was something about you and your family that really reached out and uplifted us. And now, like I said, I can hear that even through the radio airwaves. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for the son you raised. And thanks for inspiring the rest of us, not just as John's dad or Brent's wife, but as Americans to be grateful and proud of the brave men and women, not only those who die, though, of course, Memorial Day has a special intention to honor those who give their lives in the service. But how about every man or woman who gives their life to the service of the military by putting that uniform on every single day? I think you've given us as Americans a lot to think about, to remember, and above all, to be proud of. So thank you, Wendell, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for sharing this story. You know, uh, on resiliency, one of one of the key aspect of resiliency is the ability to motivate yourself after a a challenge and to be able to seek and attract positive things uh, and and to choose to find the positive in, uh, you know, what's a terrible situation or, or a tragic situation. I love that you illustrated with us how purpose driven John was and clearly his choice to go in and how he w- was received and how hard he worked he he definitely led his service with purpose he was driven and and clearly that that is a reflection of his upbringing because you guys have moved that purpose forward in serving uh with the, your foundation to help others that have lost uh service members in many different ways. So uh, just a powerful story and a powerful example and and family legacy of purpose and resiliency. So thank you for coming on today and sharing the story with us. It's, well, it's it's my honor. I am 
you know, I am, I am so privileged to live the life I live today. And it's because of great Americans, um, not just in my family, but great Americans and, and the knowledge that we all have that we live in the greatest land in the world. And, and, um, you know, I think at times we take for granted the statement that, that we are free. Well, the, the price of freedom has a cost and we are willing as a country to pay that price. And therein lies for us, I think one of those, those clarion moments when we come to that realization that the price of freedom isn't free, it costs, the cost can be heavy, but we're still willing as a country and as individuals to pay it. That brings great hope to me and to those around us who recognize that. And so thank you for the honor and the privilege of being with you this morning and and allowing me to share my thoughts and my love and feelings for my son and my family and my and my savior and my father in heaven. And it's just wonderful to be alive and to be a part of this great community. So thank you both of you so much. And, and please don't ever hesitate to reach out and let me know how I can help. Well, we can't wait. We can't wait till you're down in Utah. You said you're coming a couple a few weeks. Couple weeks. Now. Yep, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see you soon, and we'll make sure we post some pictures while we're here. Maybe we'll run the lagoon in honor of Linda Ambard and her sweet late husband <laughs> Phil. Wendell, it's been great talking to you and to our listeners. We hope you have enjoyed this uplifting, positive, though heartbreaking story as much as we have. And we hope that you'll find our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Give us a, a rating, a review, follow us, and watch for new episodes to drop every week. If you know someone who has a real-life story, maybe of tragedy, heartache, pain, and yet they found that resilience, created that meaning and purpose, help us find them to tell the story, to get that out there, to inspire and uplift and motivate all of us to just keep going through the hard things that come our way. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient. Remember, whatever you do today... Remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Thank you and have a great day.